This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The charge of plagiarism is a serious one. Ed Litton knows this. He is the newly minted president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He is being charged with plagiarism. At least one case where he borrowed parts of a sermon without attribution from his predecessor as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention with permission. Well, he might have made matters a little worse by taking down or having taken down dozens of his other sermons on his church's website. Is this a news story, and is it news? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, it does look bad. Is this really a new story or a new problem? Well, it is a valid news story about a very, very, very old problem. So the technology changes from generation to generation. But, you know, I think people have been arguing about the plagiarism of sermons and how you do it within ethical limits, (laughs) like I said, for several centuries at least. I'd say at least since the printing press. Although maybe people said in the the backs of churches before that and took notes, but I, I I think we can guarantee that it was common after the printing press. Okay, so what is the basic story here regarding Ed Litton? It, it comes at a pretty inauspicious time for him. He was rather well-known before this, but then he was just recently elected as the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention in a, some might call a controversial election. Well, there's the story itself, and then it's possible that there's the story of the story. And when I mean that, I'm saying that, you know, it would be interesting to know who spotted this and how it made its way into the press. And I believe this is a story that was broken once again by a veteran, veteran Nashville newshound named Bob Smetana, who works now for the Religion News Service. And he used to be the religion writer at the Nashville Tennessean. And then there was also a period of time when he did research and writing for an actual agency linked to the Southern Baptist Convention. So uh, he has excellent contacts throughout the SBC. And, And I say the story of the story is interesting because I think it's safe to assume that this story begins on the Southern Baptist cultural political right, that that group of people that you and I had so much of a struggle describing the other day, whether they're ultra-conservatives, whether they're right-wings, they are just people who at this point are culturally and probably politically more conservative than the Southern Baptist mainstream, which is doctrinally conservative, but is much more complex because of its strong ties to the to the black church, to growing Latino churches, and a host of other things. So where this story begins, I don't think we know, ironically, because journalists don't always betray their sources either. So there you go. So let's talk about, you said this is an old problem. 
is it a problem? And we're talking here about sermons that are not, in often cases, they're not really published. Sometimes they're in this modern age just floating in the ether of the internet on the archives of live streams and things like that. And it is acknowledged that, uh, well, at least I acknowledge that when I step into the pulpit to preach, there are really no original ideas there. I got them from somebody else, and they've been kind of mashed through the sieve of my brain and come out sounding original, but I didn't come up with any. I was taught these things in the seminary and by Mm -hmm. other pastors. Is it really a problem? Well, there's several different layers to this, and I think Bob Smetana's story does a pretty good job of describing this. I have an interesting perspective on this as a journalist in that for a couple of years in Denver, I taught a course for future ministers and preachers, for the most part, at Denver Theological Seminary. And one of the things I was trying to do was to get future pastors, youth leaders, etc., to preach the occasional sermon in which they kind of argued back at their culture. I considered it a kind of mass media form of apologetics. And I said we were chasing what I used to call signals. And a signal is when some major form of mass media raises a subject of great importance that the church cannot ignore. Now, a lot of megachurches today, you've got guys that will stand in the pulpit and actually put the thing up on a big, huge, massive screen and show a scene from a movie. And they're often doing this just for illustrative purposes. I was thinking of it more as a form of apologetics where you're actually attempting to respond to something that's going on in the culture. And I used to say this is something where the culture gets the question right, but from the viewpoint of the church, the answer is twisted. So immediately, the minute I started talking about this, my students began saying, okay, but how do we handle that in the pulpit? How do we quote things? How do we attribute information? Or do we just say, I read a review the other day? And I was arguing for a very strict form of attribution. And my example here was actually Billy Graham, who used to, early in his career, used to stand in the pulpit and actually at times even play out scenes that occurred in movies. But he clearly would say, this is the movie that I'm now quoting, and here's some of the dialogue. You know, he would, and he would tell people exactly where this came from. And I was arguing that this is what ministers should be doing when they use anecdotal material from media and from popular culture. And most of the students agreed with me. A lot of them were uncomfortable thinking that if they were going to admit to their people what sermons they had seen. Instead of saying, like, I've heard about a movie that they would actually have to say, the other day I went and saw Thelma and Louise, and this scene upset me a lot, and from what I hear from people in my church, it's upsetting a lot of you. They needed to talk more candidly. But notice the central issue here. How do you attribute information? Now, Bob notes that ministers all the time are quoting from commentaries. They're quoting from books that help them with the the Latin and the Greek and everything else. I'm, the founder of our church here in Oak Ridge has an actual degree in classics. And so when he quotes Greek and Hebrew and Latin, we know he's quoting his own translations. But a lot of people 
believe that it's perfectly acceptable to quote insights from commentaries that you have purchased and put on a shelf in your study without telling people, I got this from page so-and-so of the following commentary. I personally think it adds authority to preaching when you say, I looked at five different commentaries on this one, and here's what they all agree on. But see, I'm a journalist. I think that attributing information is a sign of authority in the reporting, where a lot of people look at preaching as a kind of performance art to where the goal is to look as insightful and brilliant as you can. And that could be the problem we're actually talking about here. There's a whole nother level to this, which is that there are online sources where ministers have been known to purchase entire sermon outlines, fill them in with a little bit of their own work, and then preach those sermons. I have the same kinds of problems with that that I have when students do exactly the same thing for term papers. Is this qualitatively different? I want to come back to the RNS story in a minute, but is this qualitatively different than, I think it was, oh, maybe a decade ago, then at the time, superstar pastor Mark Driscoll was discovered to have plagiarized some of his published work, a book he wrote without attribution. So you're saying that in the sermons he plagiarized himself? No, he, he actually wrote a book in which he plagiarized another author without attribution. Ah. I was caught at it. Okay. Well, now we're talking about things that are printed in a book and then sold for money, which is different than getting up in a pulpit and this is you're paid a salary to be the voice of this church and to be its pastor and preacher, but you're you're not preaching the sermon and then everybody's going to buy tickets to get into a theater to see it or something like that. I think stuff that ends up on a page and is plagiarized, that's just serious legal, period, no matter what you think of the vague copyright laws in American journalism right now and in the Internet. I mean, there are websites that run my columns with zero copyright note and with zero payment to either me or to the syndicate that syndicates my column. We just kind of live in an age where it's gotten vague like that. You know, we could go on and on about the printed side of this. You obviously are familiar with some of the links that authors are going to today. J.K. Rowling rings a bell and all the battles to keep the Harry Potter materials you know, locked away. I'm just going to say at this point that in the age of the Internet, how you would prevent someone from copying stuff off the Internet and then paraphrasing it or something like that, I really don't know how you would do that. Terry, what stood out in that religion news service story by Bob Smetana that distinguished it from other press coverage of this issue? Well, I think simply because he broadened it out to the wider subject that this is a story that affects almost every pastor in America and the world, I guess, to some degree or another, in that all of them face how to do proper attribution of some of the material that they use. And then the issue becomes, where do you draw the line about that attribution? In this case, it was very interesting, of course, that 
the man he was ripping off, so to speak, SBC President J.D. Greer, is someone who considers Lytton to be kind of one of his, I don't know if it, it's too long to call him a mentor, but they definitely are, have ties, you know, within kind of the, the, the centrist mainstream conservative part of the Southern Baptist Convention. So the fact that Lytton says, and Greer has verified, that they talked about these sermons and that Lytton had permission to use the structure and some of the ideas from this sermon. Now, it also helps to know this is a very controversial J.D. Greer sermon, one that the more conservative, conservative elements of the SBC have been going after him for some time. So they might have been looking to see if Lytton had adopted this position. And the theology there, I'll just go ahead and mention that, the theology he was saying is that he didn't want to shout at his sermon about homosexuality and some sins of that kind, while the Bible had much more to say about pride and greed and justice. Now, he was not saying he had changed his positions on sexual acts or sexual activities outside of Christian marriage. He wasn't saying that at all. In fact, I thought it was interesting, and I followed this controversy for some time. Greer was saying something very similar to points that C.S. Lewis frequently made in his writing, and that could be where Greer got the idea that the sin of pride is probably the worst sin of all and the most difficult, and that Lewis actually thought that sins of the flesh were probably easier to confess and to rid yourself of than the overwhelming structural sin of personal pride. So, whole other issue there. Anyway, if Lytton had permission to use some of this material from Greer, and both men agree that he did, you know, the question I would raise is why didn't, when he started this sermon series, why didn't he just say, you know, I've been talking in recent months with SBC President J.D. Greer, and he preached a tremendous sermon series on this, and we've talked about it, and he's given me permission to share some of his ideas with you. So here we go. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with actually attributing the source? I think part of the problem here is that in the world of evangelicalism in particular, preaching is considered such a performance art, and the brilliance of your preaching is so crucial to the success of your career that I think ministers just want the reputation that comes with being known as this dynamite preacher, and that sometimes makes it tempting to blur the lines a little bit. Let's talk about maybe a kissing cousin of plagiarism, but one that's far more acceptable, in at least in publishing, that is ghostwriting. Well, acceptable or not, it's certainly common. Years ago, I interviewed a superstar in the world of ghostwriting for evangelicals, a man who now, his name is Mel White, is probably better known as one of the nation's leading LGBTQ activists among mainline and even kind of liberal evangelical circles. But this was a man who did ghostwriting for Billy Graham, Pat Robertson, Jim Baker, and Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell once was asked a series of questions about his autobiography, 
by the press, and he said, well, I don't know. Here, let's ask Mel White. He wrote the thing, which was candor or typical Jerry Falwell bluntness, you know, who knows. But the simple fact of the matter, Mel White told me once when I interviewed him, he said, if I pulled out the bestseller list for books and Christian publishing right now, which, of course, would be dominated by evangelicals, he said, I'd be willing to bet you money that at least there are five ghostwritten books in the top 20 for every one that was actually written by the person whose name is on it. This gets into a second layer of ghostwriting, which is where you have the superstar's name, and then it says, with so-and-so. And everybody assumes at that point that that means that the writer probably sat down and interviewed the superstar speaker for hours and hours and hours and hours, then transcribed the material, wrote the book, and then the, the person whose name is on top in bold letters approved the book. And that's how a lot of evangelicalism goes on. If that isn't ghostwriting, I've I've always just said, why don't they just put both names the same size and treat them as co-authors? I see no reason to not respect the integrity of books in which the authors work together and then produce a text that has both of their names on the front cover of equal size. You've been around long enough to know there were some controversies about this, about the late Chuck Colson, and how much of his material featured a professional writing staff, which assisted him in the research and in the writing of most of the things that came out under his name or through his microphone. And part of the issue there was that Colson came out of a legal culture where it's incredibly ordinary, all the way to the level of the Supreme Court let alone speech writing as an art in Washington, D.C. culture, where presidents and justices are quoted all the time as saying, in their opinion, or in their inauguration address, you know, and they get up and say these things, and we quote them all the time as said so-and-so, when everybody knows those were written by professional script writers, and they frequently those Supreme Court opinions had all kinds of research that was done by the members of their staff. In D.C., this is a controversial subject among politicians and among public leaders. It's not just an issue of ministers trying to get away with this. It's a, there are blurry lines all over the place in a world that pays you more money if you're supposed to be brilliant and articulate. With uh, just a little bit more than a minute here, Terry, does this story have legs since videos of numerous sermons were removed from Lytton's church's YouTube account? Oh, yeah. I think we can assume at this point that for the enemies of Ed Lytton, and remember, this was a close election. You know, he won by 2 or 3%, you know, at a very heated convention, probably the tightest election for the Southern Baptist presidency in more than a decade or two. I think it's safe to assume that there will be people who continue to go after him and that reporters will be fielding lots of telephone calls from them and receiving more than a few emails. I think that's safe to predict. So does it remain newsworthy for that reason? It depends on what happens. You could say that Lytton didn't do a very good job of getting ahead of the story simply by removing, or somebody, 
removing all those other sermons from the website uh, instead of addressing why they did so on such a broad scale. If he had come out with a press conference and said, I'm not sure how many people I quoted in these sermons, so to be safe, and because I know I have enemies researching it, we're taking these things down. If he had been candid like that, he, he would have hung a lantern on his problem, and he would have gone away quicker. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.